Thank you, Paula. Um, our scripture reading today is from John chapter 13. It's verses 21 through 29. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned for him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I have said to the Jews, so now I can also say to you, where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, and if you have lo that if you have love for one another. This has been the reading of God's word. Good morning, guys. Uh, as uh, my name is Randy, one of the elders here at Doxa. As uh, many of you guys know, uh, my back went out unexpectedly, out of the blue, last Friday. Um, it was un I mean, inexplicable. I was uh, in bed, unable to shift in bed for three days, and un unable to get out of bed for five days. Um, still not 100%, but I'm getting much better, and uh, Megan and I, we both want to thank you guys for the love and care that you've shown for us over the past week, all the texts, the calls, the, the meals. Um, you really help to carry our burden, and it means a lot, and I just want to know that I love you guys, and that we love you guys, and um, it's very, very special. Uh, one of the things I'm, well, actually, the thing I'm most grateful for is, besides the texts and calls and the meals, which were great, um, is your prayer. And not just your prayer for me, but I was getting texts last Sunday, hey, people are praying fervently, and not just for you, but for the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon us. People are praying for revival and renewal and awakening. That's what we've been crying out for. Uh, when I was down, uh, it was rough, but I had a, a profound sense of the Lord's presence with me. And while we've been asking God to come and move in prayer, I have a profound sense of his presence and a sense of confidence that that's a prayer that he's more than willing to answer. And I just want to encourage you guys, God is not slow in answering that prayer, at least not as he considers slowness. 
God has been, as we've been praying, God has been preparing us. The enemy, who hates that kind of prayer, has been opposing us. He's been opposing him. But here's the truth. As I was, it really struck me as I was laying in bed, it really struck me that even Satan's greatest assault is only a tool in the hand of God to answer such a prayer. It's only a tool in the Lord's hand to accomplish his purpose. And I had such an awareness as I was lying there, helpless for days and in pain, that even though Satan could attack me, he really couldn't touch me. I've been crying out for the Lord to pour out his spirit upon us. It has become my sole passion in life. And I felt the Lord spoke to my heart, go forward in confidence knowing that I'm with you. God, guys, God is taking us forward. God is taking us forward and he's determined to answer the prayer that we have been praying. He has so much for us. And here's my encouragement to you. As a friend and as a pastor, I just encourage you, continue to press forward. Some of you guys, the, the cares of this world and the pulling away of, of your sin and flesh has been, has been starting to, to weaken a little bit in your life. Do not let it pull you back in. Press in and seek the Lord. And let's see what God has for us if we don't give up. Let's see what God has for us if we don't give up. Now let's see what he has for us today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for your presence here and for your guidance. Lord, I, ask, I thank you for your power that I have seen at work in my life even in the past week. That I thank you that I get to be a part of this congregation at this point in time. And Lord, we cry out to you. We don't rest upon our power. We don't rest upon our arms or our strength. We rest upon your everlasting arms. We rest upon your faithfulness. We rest upon your spirit and your word alone. And we cry out to you, Lord, would you pour out your spirit upon us that we might be fruitful. God, would you pour out your spirit upon us now here even this morning that you might come and put, put your finger on those areas of our life where we have built on sand instead of on the solid rock. That you would do the word that only that you can do in our hearts and minds, a deep work, Lord, to draw us to yourself. For your glory and for our joy, we pray. Amen. Well, today we're jumping back into the Gospel of John. We're at the end part of chapter 13. And this is where Jesus is having his last meal, his last particularly Passover meal with his disciples. And at this meal, as we just read, he tells them, hey, one of you are going to betray me. In fact, he not only says one of you, he actually lets Judas know, hey, I know it's you. Hey, can you imagine that exchange as he passes the morsel to Judas? He says, I know it's you. I know you've purposed in your heart to betray me. Hey, can you, how long did Jesus know that? 
Can you think about the, the patience and love of our Savior? That he would day after day, night after night, meal after meal, share a, a room, a table, a a meal, a morsel with the one who had been plotting and planning and preparing to betray him? What kind of love and forbearance does he have? And he tells, he tells Judas, do what you got to do. Do it quickly. And with that moment, everything's set in motion. Judas gets up and he leaves, and everything is now in motion. And now Jesus looks around the table at his 11 remaining disciples, and he's like, this is who I have. These 11 disciples that don't quite get it, that can't, that have been recently fighting over who's the greatest and who gets to sit at my right hand and who's going to have the most power and who keeps telling me that I shouldn't go and die. The one thing the Father sent me to do, these, these disciples that are so dull and don't get it, these, this is who I have, but yet he loves them. I mean, they couldn't understand what had happened, what was happening. Jesus takes this moment, this moment that he has between this meal, this Passover meal, and the moment he's going to be betrayed, and he takes this, this time, and he lays out for them the things that he most wants them to remember. John spends over four chapters dealing with what he shares with these disciples here in this upper room. Maybe the, maybe the course from the upper room to the garden, but somewhere in this time, Jesus lays out this teaching. And what does he start out with? What would you start off? You know, hey, these are my 11 disciples. They're not quite getting it. They're kind of dull, but this is what I'm leaving. What are you, you going to leave these guys with? What are you going to spend your time doing? Maybe you'll appoint the next leader. Hey, this is who my successor is going to be. Uh, listen to him. Or maybe it's like, hey, guys, I've got a plan and a strategy. You guys just need to follow this. Listen to our corporate plan on what we're going to do as Jesus Inc. This is what's going to do it. Listen, this is the strategic plan. I spent three years laying it out for you guys, and now I want you guys to run with it. This is how we're going to do the thing. What is the one thing, the first thing that Jesus lays out in this address to his disciples whenever he's getting ready to leave? You know what he says? Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You're going to seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. He's telling me he's going to die. A new commandment I give to you. This is what he tells them, the first thing. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. He says, here's what I'm leaving you with. Here's the one thing, the one thing that you have to do. You have to love one another. And here's why he says that's so important. He says that, the fact that you love one another as I have loved you, that will be the distinguishing, observable characteristic of my people. The distinguishing, observable characteristic of my people will be that they believe all the right things, 
that they have great music and are really good at preparing services and have great kids programs and awesome, exciting youth programs and cool lights and displays and a great building and they help you park. I'm not against any of those things, but is that what he says is the great thing that's going to distinguish you from everybody else? He says the distinguishing, observable characteristic that you are my people will be this, that you love one another and that you love each other as I have loved you. This is how they're going to know that you're Jesus' people. This is how they're going to know that you belong to my kingdom because you love one another. Now, we can stop right there and everybody in this room could be pretty much on board with that command. Love one another. Okay, got it. We should love each other. We should be nice to each other. Yeah, I can get behind that. I'm you know what, Randy, as we talk about it, it makes me just, that's just a good reminder. I'm going to go out of here. I'm going to be a nicer person today. Uh, tomorrow at Walmart, man, I'm just going to be a little bit nicer to the people in front of me and to the cashier who can't seem to get their stuff together. I'm going to be a little bit nicer. Uh, no one seems to disagree with that statement. That is, until you realize two things about this command that Jesus gave. First of all, it's a command and not a suggestion. And secondly, it's an impossible command. It's a command and not a suggestion. And secondly, it's an impossible command. Jesus commands us to love. Those aren't the words of a moral teacher. Those aren't the words of a, such suggestions of a kindly man. They're not instructions from some guy. They aren't the nice ideas of someone who doesn't quite understand the nuances of life. Notice how Jesus says, a new commandment I give you. You know what that is? That's the Son of God himself. The one who alone is eternal, the one through whom the stars were born, the, the creator and the king of all, this is him issuing a command to us, his created people. And this moment, the weakest moment that he's had so far in his human life, he is staring down the barrel at a point that he's been marching towards yet, but he's been recoiling against. He is right now, at this moment, being betrayed by one of his closest friends. The others at this table, he knows, are going to desert him. He's going to be forsaken by his father, his eternal father. And he, the creator of life, will experience death. And yet, in this, even in his weakest moment, staring down a death that he doesn't want to face. Remember, he's going to, in a few hours, he's going to cry out in the garden, if it can be possible, take this cup away from me, Father. And yet here he is, in this weakness, in absolute and utter control. He's going forward into such darkness because of love. And he looks around at these 11 guys that are so often dull of heart, dull of mind, and honestly, so often idiotic. And he looks at them and he says, I'm doing this in love for you. 
I kind of look around this room and I think we're not altogether different than those 11 disciples. I don't know how together you are, but I'm often dull of heart and idiotic. And yet Jesus looks at me with love. And he looks at you with love. And in this moment, he issues a new commandment. He says, if you're going to be my people, if you're going to be my people, then you must love each other. You must love one another. And if you do, it will look like this. First of all, why is this a new commandment? They've been told to love God and neighbor before, but this, this statement for us to love each other the way Jesus has loved us, this is revolutionary. It's revolutionary in its depth and its scope and in its implications. The depth of the commandment goes this far. He says, he says this. He says, he doesn't tell us to try and act like we love each other. Ever told your kids that or had your parents tell you that as a kid? Hey, kids, just try and act like you love each other for a minute. That's not what Jesus is saying. He says, try and act like you love each other. He says we must actually love each other, and love can only come from the heart. That's how deep the command goes. Look how wide or how the scope of the commands. Jesus is saying that our heartfelt love for each other must play out to the same extent that his love for us plays out. Here's what he's saying. There must be feet to love. There must be hands to love. There must be sacrifice to love. How far did Jesus' love for us go? All the way from heaven to earth? And all the way to the cross, and all the way to the grave. When he didn't deserve any of those things. How far does Jesus' love for you go even now? How far has he come after you? How far has he chased you whenever you've run after him? Even as a believer, how many times have your heart been hardened and you've been running away from him and he's come after you and he has kindly and lovingly drawn you back to himself? It's a deep commandment, and there's a wide commandment, and the implications are huge. Jesus said our love for each other is so important that it would be the trademark of our legitimacy as the people of God. In other words, anywhere you go in the world, when you see the golden arches, you can expect whatever else they may have, they're going to have burgers and fries. I've been in a couple places and I've, man, those are beautiful golden arches when you see them. Man, I might say, oh, McDonald's here, but every year, like in India and you've been there for a few weeks and you see golden arches, you're like, praise the Lord. Get me a burger and some fries. Anywhere you go in the world, when you see golden arches, you know they're going to have burgers and fries. And this is what Jesus says. Even more so, anywhere you go in the world, when you see true love for one another, you've seen Jesus' people. And if you see people who claim Christ as their Lord and Savior, then you must 
see people who love one another just as he loved us. That's our trademark. And you can put golden arches and you can sell fried chicken if you like, but you're not a McDonald's and we can put a cross on front of a building, but if we do not love one another, take the cross off. Someone should sue us for, for malpractice because we are not the people of God if we do not have the love for each other, the kind of love that Jesus has for us. And he says that is a heartfelt love, it is a wide scope love. That's the implications. So you see, Jesus commands the impossible. It's impossible for two reasons. Our track record for one, but what is the track record of humanity regarding loving each other in this way? Not great. What is the track record of your family history in loving each other like this? Not great. What's your track record regarding this kind of love? What kind of fruit has your love borne in your life? What's the state of your love for others right now? Do you even feel a, a heartfelt desire to love others like this? Selflessly, sacrificially? Even when you think about those who are closest to you, do you feel that kind of love? What about people in this room that you don't even know? What about people in this room that you don't like? What about those who hate you? What about those who have deeply wronged you? What in our track record would make us think that we could love each other the way that he has loved us? Nothing. It's an impossible command. It's impossible when you look at our track record, but it's also impossible when you look at Jesus' definition of love. He says to love others, each other, just like he has loved us. From the heart, serving until and even through death itself. That's what he's saying. You see, this is a particular kind of love. It's not what we would often call loving each other. It's a love that's not just a feeling. It's a love that's a commitment. Hey, I'm not going to love you guys as my brothers and sisters in Christ until you guys disagree with me or I disagree with you or you guys do something I don't understand or you cross me. Then I'll go find some other people that I can love for a while until they do the same thing and then we all just kind of float around from one body to the other. It's a commitment, not, a not just a feeling. It's an action kind of love. He didn't leave the definition to us for us to define. He defines what love is. In fact, Jesus totally defined what love is. 
Matthew 22, 37 and through 40, he said, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Later, we'll get to this in a little while, in a few weeks, number of weeks, Later in John 15, in this same upper room discourse, he says this, he reiterates, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he defines it for us, just in case we miss it, greater love has no man than this, what? That someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus saying this, this is love. A laying down of your life kind of love. A forgetting of your preferences kind of love. A giving until it hurts kind of love. A not counting how much I've given and how much you have given in return kind of love. A love that isn't keeping count. Jesus is saying this is true love. And this is what he's saying. He's also saying, and this is who I am. This is who I am. God is love. And in Jesus, God was and is showing us himself. And he's showing us himself to the greatest degree. He put love on display in Jesus Christ. Do you see his love on display? Jesus at this moment had left glory. We're told that he considered it he didn't consider it enough to be grasped that he left glory and he took on human flesh. And not just any human flesh, but human flesh of those who were impoverished and low and looked down upon. He was born in a forgotten place by forgotten people in a forgotten way. Then in his life, as this gloryless peasant man who nobody cared for. He went around and he healed the sick. He saw the hurting over and over. It says that he had compassion upon them. He didn't just go around healing them like some great televangelist. Bring me the sick and I shall blow upon them and do amazing things that will cause you to give great offerings to me. You know what he did? He looked upon them and he had compassion. His heart was moved with compassion, and he went to them. He touched the unclean and made them clean. He went after the hurting and made them whole. He cared for the outcasts. He washed his disciples, his inferiors. He washed their feet. On the night He's going to be betrayed. You know what that means? That means his betrayer, he washed his feet. He was heading to death. When you see that kind of love, Words begin to fail, normal words, you have to reach out for, for poetry and for song. That's why we sing in church, by the way. 
Because the love of Christ, the love of God is so amazing. Who can simply get up and talk about it? I can't do it enough. I need music. I need poetry. I need something behind me to express. There's this song I love. Maybe you've heard this old hymn. They called it the love song of the Welsh revival. It's called Here is Love. You know why they called it that? Because when God captures your heart and he reveals to you the love of Christ, when you see the love of God on display in Christ, you have to reach for a song. And the song goes like this. I'm not going to sing it. It says, here is love vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood. When the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. Who his love could not remember Who can cease to sing his praise? It can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. There's another song called, written more recently called See How He Loves Us. And the second verse goes, Son of man, robed in flesh, bearing our grief, knowing our weakness, yet despised in our eyes, pitied and poor, living among us. See how he loves us. Do you see his love today? Do you? Do you really see his love today? Here's the measure whether you do or not. Are you like the disciples sitting at this table who are confused and unmoved, ready to desert him in a few hours? Or are you like them after his resurrection and Pentecost, full of thanksgiving, overflowing with praise, and ready to follow him, willing to give up for others from the heart because Christ had loved them so lavishly? You see, Jesus' love wasn't just displayed 2,000 years ago. It's to be displayed now in the church. This love, whenever it captures our heart and overflows out of us, it is not a private love. It's public. It's conspicuous. It's obvious. These are what Jesus is saying. It's it's unmistakable. It's a love that's on display. But also, it's a love that's not boastful. It's not self-seeking. It's not the kind of love that, it's not the kind of thing that puffs up. It's not self-congratulatory. It's not posting everything I've done well on Facebook or Instagram so everybody can see the good things that I've done. That's because it's a serving love. It's a love that takes the roles that others shy away from, like Jesus washing their feet. It's a love that's not conspicuous because it's attention-seeking. It does stand out, though, because of its lack of attention-seeking. See, love like Jesus doesn't grab headlines, but you know what it does grab? It grabs hearts. And Jesus is saying that love, our love for each other, when powered by the Holy Spirit, this is what he's saying, is a powerful gospel prover. The gospel must be proclaimed 
The truth about man, the fall, sin, and death, Jesus, the cross, the resurrection, his return, that message must be proclaimed clearly. But that's not it. That's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus doesn't just say, just give them the message. That's all they need. When, when you hear non-Christians say, all right, I know what you believe, but man, I need you to prove that God is real. I need somebody to prove Christianity is true before I believe. Sometimes we're like, look, I can't prove God to you. I'd... But you know what? It's not always a crazy request. That's what Jesus is saying here. It's actually a reasonable request for us to be able to prove that Christianity is true and real. It may not convince everybody, but there should be proof in our midst that Jesus is real and Christianity is true. And you know what Jesus is saying is the truth? You know what he's saying proves it? Is it proven by sound arguments? Is that what he says? Is it proven by by undeniable apologetics? Is that what he says? He said, they will know. They, on the outside, will know because they will see it. They will know because they will experience it. And they won't be able to deny it. He's saying the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God will be seen and it will be seen in your love for each other. And because of that, he says, the gospel will be proved. It will be demonstrated as true. They can do whatever they want after that. They can still walk away, but they can't refute the reality. Well, what, what would that look like? What would it look like for us to love each other like that? First of all, it would be, it would involve action. Sacrificial action for each other. To serve each other. To prefer one another. To put other people in front of ourselves. But it will be more than simply action. It will be based on a heartfelt affection. In other words, the kind of love Jesus is talking about here is not simply affection. It's not saying, hey, I happen to go to church with a lot of people that I, I like, you know. I, I love them in some general way. But he's saying, no, from your heart, there must be true affection. But that affection must be borne out in true action. In other words, it can't be less than affection but it has to be more. But instead, when we look around, what seems to be the state of love in the U.S. church? What seems to be the state of love in our midst? Have you noticed how prominent controversy plays in the church and among Christians? In conversation, online, back and forth, 
A controversy isn't new. It's been an issue from the beginning. Paul said this in Romans 14.1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. The NIV says, not quarreling over disputable matters. But in our day, we live with superpower controversy. Social media, TV, YouTube, talk radio, podcasts, point and counterpoint, man, they fly back and forth really fast, don't they? They fly fast and they fly hard. And suddenly some issue, it could be political issue, it could be cultural issue, it could be a religious issue, it could be a theological issue, some issue strikes up Christians, it could be from Christian to Christian or Christians to the world, and all of a sudden that, that issue becomes center stage and drives conversation and debate. You know what? It's this week of controversy. And it seems so important, doesn't it? Like this is the most important thing the church is facing today. The stakes seem so high. It seems like, man, we all have to take a stand on this issue. It could be the last election, or it could be masked, or it could be some weird eschatological, like end times kind of thing, or, or it could be the, the, the manner that we do church, or whether we meet on Christmas Day or not on Christmas Day could be all kinds of things, but all of a sudden this controversy takes center stage and it's the most important thing. And we have Christians yelling at non-Christians and even worse, Christians yelling at other Christians over what Paul calls disputable matters or our opinions. Whenever I've been seeing that recently, I just... I think we should have to, we should wonder, like, could it be just that, like, whatever this issue is, it's the hot button issue this week, could it be that we just came to, like, some tipping point in this discussion, and yeah, now, like, this thing is the big thing we all have to talk about, we all have to take an opinion on, we all have to argue about back and forth, or could it be, could it be that the enemy of God and the church is dropping one more well-timed controversy to keep us from unity, to keep us from crying out to God, and actually engaging in his mission. Many, many Christians are slaves to current issues. Some issues that seem crucial and important, but, but in reality, you're being led around by the nose by the enemy who could not honestly care what theological stance you take on end times or second and third tier theological issues or political issues or cultural responses. I mean, he wants to spread falsehood and lies. But you know the best way that he can undermine God's word is what Jesus is saying right here. By getting people, not just, not to deny the, power of God's word, but people deny the primacy of our love for one another and humility, all while claiming that they're holding on to the word. And here's what I'm saying. It's our pride that leads us into disputes over disputable issues. It's pride that leads us to disputes over opinions. instead of majoring on the indisputable truths 
that if we truly understood them would leave us to love and humility and unity. After all, Jesus didn't say, they'll know you're my disciples because you're fully right. He said, they'll know you're my disciples because of your love for one another. And how can love be truly seen if not among those who disagree? That's how our love is seen. When there are those that we don't agree with, that we strongly disagree with, there's some that we don't like, that we strongly don't like and don't like us, but yet we make a decision that because Christ cared for us when we were enemies, we can love those who hold a different second or third tier theological stance or who just personality rubs me the wrong way. That's where love is shown. The first thing we have to do Getting ready to land the plane. The first thing we have to do is we have to say we're not going to accept anything less than this. And then we have to recognize that this kind of love isn't just a command that he calls us to follow, but this kind of love is a power that changes. Listen to this. Look at the point of Jesus' command. I know we've hit it, but just, just listen. He said, I'm paraphrasing here, they will know that you are no longer a part of the kingdom of this world. They will know that you are a part of my kingdom because of your heartfelt, overflowing, action-based love for each other. Here's what he's saying. He's saying they'll know that it couldn't have come from you, and there's our good news. They will know that it couldn't come from you. And when do we see that kind of love break out among these 11 disciples around this dinner table? Was it after they just heard this commandment and Jesus is getting ready to, to, to go to, to death and he says, love each other? And they're like, oh, Jesus said love each other. Oh, cool, we're going to do it now. No. Just a few hours, they were scattered and left Jesus in the lurch. They were not loving him or each other. This is when it happened. Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit fell upon them. Three, Peter preaches a sermon. 3,000 people come into the church. And it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done to the apostles and all who believed were together. Hear that. And all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Also, we see it when the Spirit of God was poured out upon his people again in Acts chapter 4. And when they had prayed, the place in which they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, the full number of those who believed, listen to this, were of one heart and soul. 
Does that mean they didn't disagree on anything? No. They were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Here's the truth. When the Holy Spirit falls among a people and makes the love of Jesus real to our hearts and souls, you what happens? It pours out of us to each other. And then the people from the outside look on and say, there's no way that could be of them. It must be of God. They must be members of Jesus Christ's kingdom. It's not just a command to love. It's not just something to be displayed. It's a power from on high. It's a power that is at work in the hearts of believers because it's the very nature and character of God. So what must we do? What must you do? What's the state of your love for other believers? What's the state of your love for Christ? First of all, pray and repent to God for your lack of love. Secondly, repent to those who you have not loved. Ah, but look at the love of Jesus on display. And cry out to God that he would pour out his spirit upon you and upon us and grant us the power to love each other just as he loved us so that the world will see and know. The gospel will be proved and we'll see a harvest like they saw in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 for his glory. I'm going to pray and we're going to prepare for communion. The band's going to come up. We're going to have two stations, one on either side. You can line up as you see fit while the band is playing. You'll receive the bread and the juice. Come back to your seat I'll lead us in communion together. This table is open for you if you're a believer in Christ today. If you're not a believer, don't leave today without bowing your knee and accepting, confessing Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. And if that's you, come see me before you leave. Come see me while we're singing. Don't worry if you're distracting me or stopping me from communion. It would make my week I could pray with you. If you're a believer in Christ today, come and receive the broken body and blood of Christ as a reminder. See his love played out for you, on display for you. And as you receive it, as you take it, say, Lord, fill me with your spirit that I might love as you have loved me. Father, we ask that you would come, that you would move in our hearts, that you would glorify, Holy Spirit, the name of the Son, that you reveal and show us your love for us in him. It's in Christ's name we pray.